How's everybody? All right. Now, we're still far enough south that y'all got to talk back to the preacher, right? All right. Giving up for my brother Del Rio up here, you know. It's just, you know, brother, blessing us and challenging us. Thank you for the word, brother. And uh, brother, thank you for the, the privilege and the opportunity to come and to share uh, at the conference and to open God's word with all of you. And thank you for coming. Be no conference if there weren't conferees, right? And um, it's so good to see uh, friends old and new and to be thinking about this subject. I, I, I can't think of a more important discussion for our day. And that the church should press into the conversation about justice and what it looks like. And in this talk, and the talk that we'll do after lunch, uh, I want to ground this in a couple of propositions. The first proposition is this, that justice is a Bible word. I have to say that because too many conservatives express suspicion of the very word as though it belongs to liberals. And I have to say that because too many progressives attempt to define the word without reference to the Bible. But justice is a Bible word. Here's the second proposition. The best way to define justice then, to achieve the balance we need in the definition of justice, is by amassing the teaching of the Bible on justice. In other words, here's a place where we need to do some systematic theology, where we need to sort of take the references to justice in the scriptures and kind of amass, if you will, some kind of organized statements about what the Bible teaches on the question of justice. And if we don't do that, we're prone to fall off one side of the cliff or the other. So we read things like, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that is the justice of God, James 1.20. So whatever we mean by justice, we can't mean unbridled and fleshly anger. Or we read warnings like, do not neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So whatever we think about obedience to God and obedience to the scripture, God says in his word, the heaviest part of it is justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so the Bible will help us get some balance here. Proposition number three. Biblical justice must be married to biblical ethics. Biblical justice must be married to biblical ethics. In other words, we may only pursue the Bible's vision for justice in the way that the Bible itself prescribes. There's no way to be just without, in fact, doing justice. The Bible's depiction of the just man joins together head, that is theology, heart, that is worship, and hands, that is ethics. Be faithful to the Lord in this area. We want to join those things together. And there's a peculiar problem on this subject. Depending upon your leanings, you may be all head trying to get it down into your heart a little bit, but a long way from hands. Or you may be all hands trying to work it up into your heart a little bit, but no head. The Bible holds the whole person together and calls the whole person to the pursuit of justice. 
So let me give you a definition for justice, and then I'm going to try to do in these two talks what I suggested we need to do for balance. I'm going to try to survey the Bible to give us a kind of systematic theology of justice, of biblical justice. Now, I'm going to fail because the Bible has too much to say. Um, and so the rest of it, you got to finish. You finish this sermon at home, all right? Um, but I'm going to try to give us as much as I can in the time that I have. And let me first start with a definition. Here we go. Justice is the character of God. That's the theology. It's the character of God reflected in his creation, especially in his people. That's the worship. Justice is the character of God reflected in his creation, especially his people, whereby they do, that's the hands, whereby they do what is right, fair, and good in all relationships. Whether it's the relationship with God, the relationship with neighbor, the relationship with self, or in relation to the rest of creation. That, I want to argue, beloved, is what justice is. And I think we see that as early as Exodus chapter 5, Exodus chapter 20, where we get the law of God. We're so accustomed rightly to thinking of the law of God as revealing the character of God. But listen, beloved, is there any law that can probably be called good law that is not also just? So even when we're reading the, the commandments and the tables of the law, we're reading a declaration of God's character, as we shall see, his character is just. And insofar as the first table of the law calls us to stand in right relationship with God, we're talking about that justice that we we owe to God, that just right standing that we owe to God. And the second table of the law calls us to just relationship with our neighbors. We're talking about that justice played out on the horizontal, the justice that we owe each other. And insofar as the law is about sin and exposes our sin and sin breaks us, we're talking about being just with ourselves as we pursue that moral vision and the law. So let's think about what the Bible tells us about the character of God, the heart of God, and the work of God with regard to justice. That's the outline if you're, if you're taking notes. Number one, the character of God. The first thing the Bible tells us about the character of God is that God is just. That's deep, ain't it? <laughs> I know it's obvious, right? Bear with me. I think it was G.K. Chesterton said that we have now sunk to the point where the first duty of intelligent man is to state the obvious. God is just. This is what he tells us about himself. Now, you can write these down or you can do a sword drill if you want to, but Zephaniah 3 verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. You you get the picture there. Here's a God who does zero injustice. That's the answer to the question raised in Genesis 18, I think around verse 25. Shall not the God of all the earth do right? Answer, yes. (laughs) Because he does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. God gets up in the morning, if we could speak that way. God gets up in the morning and says, I think I'll make my justice shine. Isaiah 5, 16. The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Think about that verse for a moment. He's exalted in justice. He's a holy God 
Well, how do we know he's holy? Well, he shows himself holy. How? In righteousness. That's a word. That's a close cousin to justice. There's no way to fully think of God as holy without thinking of God as just. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Love that text. All his ways are justice. There's no path that God would ever walk that would not be named Justice Street. All his ways are justice. He is without iniquity. Now, I don't know much Latin, but that word iniquity comes from the Latin. In, meaning not. Aquis, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, meaning equal. Iniquity means not equal, not fair. There's no iniquity in God. He's just and upright. In African-American theology, the first theological subject that African-Americans wrestle with, for all you fancy theologues, is theodicy. The problem of God's righteousness in the presence of suffering and evil. We've reflected on that a long time. And we have emerged, as did Phyllis Wheatley and Lemuel Haynes and the earliest African Americans, we have resolved that conflict by answering, yes, God is just. This is why Martin King can talk about the moral arc of the universe being long, but it bends toward justice. In other words, theology resolves theodicy. You work out your questions of righteousness, not by pulling those problems of evil and suffering outside the character of God as if we're wise enough to sort of fix them out there. We work them out inside the character of God. It makes the questions about God more acute, but he's big enough to handle it. And he tells us that he is just. Even pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar had to confess that. Daniel 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. And Nebuchadnezzar knew. (laughs) That's testimony right there. Nebuchadnezzar stood up in the church and said, First give an honor to my Lord and Savior. God is just and right. If you don't believe it, it'll make you crawl on your belly and eat dust. And all the way over to the, revela- to the revelation from John the Revelator, Revelation 15, 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Job's friends come to him, and in Job 8.3, one of his friends, Bildad, I think, asked him this question. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? See, even people who don't know how to counsel can sometimes get some things right, right? And Job goes on a little bit later, Job 34.10. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. And Job himself speaks up in Job 37.23. Justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. This is God. God is just. And his justice 
is a part of his greatness. Turn with me to Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 14. Isaiah there contemplating the the greatness of God. He's going to tell us that there's no way to exult in the glory of God without exulting in his just character. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in a scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You see what the prophet is getting at here? No one is great enough to teach God justice. He is the definition of justice. It is God who must reveal and teach justice to us. So, beloved, there's no way for us to get justice right until we get God right. God is just. And his justness makes him great. But now let's move secondly to the heart of God. We've been talking about his character. Consider now the the heart of God. It's, It's important to know that God is not just simply, not just simply because he has to be. I remember seeing some television personality, it might have been Bill Maher or some, somebody like that who was talking about uh, some crazy um, sin and immorality at the time, and he was like, well, God's going to forgive me, right? Because he has to, he's God. Mocking. But displaying a kind of mechanical understanding of God. That, that if God is good and God is forgiving, then it doesn't matter what I do. You know, God's going to be forgiving. And, and in our view of justice, we can make a, a very similar mistake. We can think that God is just because he has to be just. But justice is something God loves about himself. The Lord loves justice. Psalm 33, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. (laughs) The earth should be full of righteousness and justice if the Lord loves it and the earth is full of his steadfast love. Psalm 37, verse 28. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Proverbs 8, 20. God here speaking. In the voice of wisdom, I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice. Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. 
I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. In verse 23, Jeremiah points out that there are some people who boast in their riches and boast in their wisdom. And in verse 24, he says this, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, speaking there, God speaking, that I am the Lord. And how does he describe himself? Who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And I read a text like that, and I just want to ask the church today, where is our boast? In so many of these conversations, it seems evident to me that we're boasting in our own wisdom. We're boasting in our own power. We're boasting in our own understanding. And God says to his people, no, 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 no. Understand, if you understand me and you know me, here's what you boast in. Boast in the fact that I am a God of steadfast love, of justice, and of righteousness in all the earth. And I delight in it, which is to say, you better delight in it too if you really know me. And I'm afraid that if we're not boasting in this God who practices justice, the text says, then we don't know this God. And that's not just the preacher, that's the text. Jeremiah 9, 24. See, the Lord, when we talk about his heart, he loves justice. And something else about the Lord's heart. The Lord loves widows and orphans and the oppressed. We don't like the language, some of us who are evangelicals. We're nervous about the language that comes from the left sometimes. So our friends on the left, the, the sort of liberal or progressive Christians, they don't have any problem saying God exercises a preferential option for the poor. And that to us doesn't sound fair, you know, over here on the right. You know, and this may be an indication of when you've got too much privilege, right? Because you're mad if God liked the poor more than he liked you. And, and you ain't wanting to remember that you blessed so that you can help the poor, right? That's why God don't like you, right? He exercises a preferential option for the poor, and he just keeps telling us it in the Bible. So Psalm 10, verses 16 and 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. You see what he's saying? God is listening to the broken so he can shut down the oppressor. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. I spent part of my life as a social scientist working in public policy. And back in the 90s, we had welfare reform and all that stuff going on, President Clinton. They developed this language about poor folk. Uh, where people wanted to distinguish between um, the sort of righteous poor and the undeserving poor. The deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And you come across a text like Psalm 103, verse 6, and God says, listen, I work justice for all the oppressed. It's really a matter of why you think they're oppressed and whether you think that's worthy. 
I work justice for all of them, all the oppressed. Psalm 140, verse 12 says this, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Psalm 146, verses 7 and 9. Interesting to note that all of these are coming from the Psalms, which are, are, are sort of indicating to us that these are things that we should be praising God about. Psalm 146, beginning in verse 7, speaks of God who executes justice. And take note of the categories for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. He does justice for all the oppressed. Now think about the way the church is thinking about justice today with regard to these categories, perhaps. It was interesting to me that in the aftermath of Mike Brown's death and after many of the deaths that followed, many in the evangelical world were quick to start quoting stats about fatherlessness and broken homes as somehow justifications for being killed by officers of the state. But the Lord works justice for the fatherless. And the question becomes, why weren't we mourning about fatherlessness rather than blaming the fatherless. Or another example. You see here that the Lord watches over sojourners. We come to this election season, and we've heard so much about immigration policy. We realize we're talking about sojourners, the foreigners among us. And what did we hear? Build a wall, make it high, make Mexico pay for it. And what did we hear? Don't let any Muslims into the country. What do we hear? The Muslims that are here, let's give them a kind of card. Beloved, we know where that goes. That goes to ovens and concentration camps. If not checked by the grace of a just God who fights for the oppressed. Here the text says he feeds the hungry. And rather than feed the hungry, we're worried about draining the swamp in Washington. And cutting off assistance to the needy. It says here he helps the afflicted. We want to roll back health insurance rather than make it more effective. He says here he brings justice to all the oppressed. We bring blame to them. Far too often. It says he sets the prisoners free. And many professing evangelicals want to build more jails. And maybe appoint the man who gave a stop and frisk, the attorney general. You see, beloved, if we have a contracted understanding of God and his just character, we're going to have a contracted understanding of what justice looks like in the world. And you can't make but so many contractions until you don't look like God at all. Beloved, this is a significant problem with making abortion the sort of single issue, justice issue in evangelical circles. I am anti-abortion. We should be protecting the orphans. And abortion, if it's nothing else, is orphaning kids before they're even born. We should be working against murder. And abortion is murder by the millions. 
But don't you see that if you shrink all of the Christians' concern to that one issue and argue that that issue uh, sort of uh, gets you off the hook from caring about all the other issues, you are not thinking God's thoughts after him. He says, I will deliver justice for all the oppressed because he loves all the oppressed and he loves to do justice. And the question is, Christian, the question is, church, do we, do we reflect God's own love for justice and for the broken? Which brings us to our third thing. We've considered God's character. We've considered God's heart. Now we want to consider God's work in the world. God's work in the world. And one of the first things that he tells us in the Bible about his work in the world has to do with his own rule. He tells us that his throne, symbolic of his rule, is established in justice. Repeatedly we see this. So Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. All of his rule is resting upon these foundational stones of righteousness and justice and love and faithfulness. He's going to be working in the world in such a way to establish a just rule in the world. And secondly, he's going to do this normally through government. He's going to do this normally through kings. I mean, listen, I can't tell you how often I'm, I'm sort of folks tweeting back and emailing back and leaving comments and saying, you know, what about Romans 13? Beloved, Romans 13 ain't the only text in the Bible about government. <laughs> I had one dude tweet me about two days ago, said, Romans 13, that's it. I was like, that's all in your Bible? And even Romans 13 is about more than the government bearing the sword. It's about God establishing justice. This is why the government should be no terror to who? The righteous. But God reflects his own work in the world to establish justice through human rulers. We see this from the, the greatest of kings, 2 Samuel 8, verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's what government is for. 1 Kings three twenty-eight. now talking about David's son Solomon. All Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king. Because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. <laughs> Nowadays, we stand in awe of the kings because of their corruption. Oh, God, send us rulers who, in whom we perceive the wisdom of God to do justice for all the people. 2 Chronicles 9, 8. Blessed be the Lord your God who is delighting in you and setting you on his throne as king for the Lord your God. Because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever, he has made you king over them. Why? That you may execute justice and righteousness. Proverbs 29, 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Because the Lord administers his justice normally and ordinarily through government. 
so many texts. Isaiah 32, verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. And often God chastises his people and the leaders of their people because of failing to give the people justice. Turn with me to Jeremiah 22, verses 1, 3 or so. There the prophet Jeremiah, that weeping, lamenting prophet, speaks to the people, says, Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates, all y'all. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the sojourner the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. This is what God is like. This is how he works in the world. Jeremiah continues. Look down in verses 11 and 17, speaking to the sons of Josiah. For thus said the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father and who went away from this place, he shall return here no more. But in the place where they have carried him captive, there shall he die, and he shall never see this land again. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. See how God deals with his kings. I mean, it reads like a castigation of unfettered capitalism, really. It certainly he is plunging a spear through the heart of selfishness and greed in, in leaders and calling his people to care and to do justice and righteousness. And here's what God is saying in all of this. Not only is he a just God who looks to work justice in the world, but his justice shall not be perverted. Not without consequence, beloved. Not without consequence. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 to 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 and 18. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now, that's the problem. See the, you see the grounding he gives for this in part? He says you do justice because you need to remember you were a slave. And far too many of us don't remember what it is to be a slave. Either a slave to our own sin or a slave to our own circumstance. And if we would but empathize with slaves or remember our own slavery, we too would have a heart 
to pursue justice the way God calls us to. Isaiah 33, 5 and 6, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. If his people know him and love him this way. And any injustice, beloved, it's going to be punished if it's perverted. You remember Samuel's sons. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Who did such injustice even in the house of worship with God? 1 Samuel 8 verse 3 says this, Yet his Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways but turn aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. It didn't end well with them. Lamentations 3, 34 and 36. Jeremiah there is kind of speaking like Yoda. He, he puts the active part of the sentence at the end, right? Notice what he says in these three verses. To crush underfoot. Now, I feel like I need to speak like Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. To subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. See, the sting is in the tail, right? The Lord does not approve. He punishes injustice. One more, Isaiah 10, 1 to 4. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. It's a dreadful day of judgment against iniquity and injustice. This too is how God will work in the world. He will make all the crooked ways straight, and he will call all the crooked people to account. I should make one other point about this as we're thinking about justice and the character of God. That we ought not miss, as Christian people, the messianic connection to justice. It's told us throughout the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. It famed verses that we cherish at, say, Christmas time. Like Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, how? With justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 16, verses 4 and 5, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter them to them for from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Isaiah 28, 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. 
and hail will sweep away the refugee, the, the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. On that great messianic psalm, Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 3. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. We love that part. But you know what the next part is? He will faithfully bring forth justice. We don't mind. This is what I've observed. You can tell me at the break if I'm wrong. And then I'll explain why you're wrong. (laughs) This is is what I've observed. There there are professing Christians who I think would be chastised by these texts. And at times these checks chastise me. I don't mean to give an impression. I'm, I'm sort of the embodiment of this stuff. But there are professing Christians whom I think would be chastised by this text. They don't mind if I speak to them about injustice, if I, if, if I speak as one who feels hurt. If, 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 in other words, I come with this sort of subjective sense that, oh, this is hurt, or I feel betrayed, or if it's about my feelings, they don't mind having a conversation, but if it's about the log in their eye, if I make an objective point about right and wrong, that they can't abide. See, they don't mind if I'm a bruised reed and a smoking flax, but if I say Jesus brings justice, and you wrong, oh, then we're ready to fight. And we're ready to fight. We need the church to hear that Matthew 12, 15 to 20, which quotes Isaiah 42, that is telling us that what Isaiah 42 prophesied is fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we need to see not only God the Father is just, and loving justice, but Jesus as just and loving justice too, so that we have this following Jesus in justice taking up an appropriate place in what we think it means to be Christian disciples. And so that if we are from time to time confronted about the objective wrongs in our lives, we're not running away from that, but we're loving, as our brother let us in a moment ago, to pray prayers of lament and repentance and healing. Beloved, this, this, this is one of the things that troubles me about this conversation in the church. Because I know that real Christians love conviction. I mean, it hurt, but it hurt so good. <laughs> I mean, re- real Christians get that spanking and they feel like they're being treated like sons, just as the Bible says, Right? Then they get that spanking and they feel experientially just what the Bible says. They are being helped to participate in the righteousness of God. Real Christians, they, they embrace the discipline of the Lord. And I wonder about the church in its rejection of such discipline. If it's not proving that so much of it is illegitimate song. Jeremiah says in chapter 23, verses 5 to 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. I think that is in the fullness of the revelation, 
pointing, yes, to the imputation of his righteousness, but I think it also points to the reign of his righteousness under which we are meant to live. This is the God we serve. This is what he's like. And his justice is reason to praise him. So David says in Psalm 10, verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. God, in character, is just. God, in his heart, loves to do justice for all the oppressed. And with his hands, working through government, in time, and certainly in eternity, God establishes justice, and he will correct everything that rebels against it. He is worthy of our praise. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you. Just and true. Righteous and faithful. Oh, Lord, the foundation of your throne is justice and righteousness. And from your throne, oh, Lord, comes the proclamation of your just character and your love for all the oppressed. And we give you praise, O Lord, that you have sided not with the wealthy. You have sided not with the rich in this age. You have not sided with the powerful in the world, but you have sided with yourself in the cause of redeeming and healing and restoring all who are broken. And you have sent your son, the righteous branch, into the world to provide righteousness, first of all, by faith in him who was crucified and buried and resurrected for us, but also by his reign, his lordship in the lives of those who believe in him, and finally, in the consummation of his kingdom. And so we pray, Lord, let justice roll down. Let it become a mighty stream that washes over your church. Give us, O Lord, grace to repent of injustice wherever we find it. And give us grace to fight against it when it's not in us, but elsewhere. O Lord, we would be your people. We would be known by your name. We would follow you in all your ways. So give us a biblical and healthy understanding of justice. And grant, O Lord, that we would do it. Help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.